Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you and to have you with us this morning for worship at WPC. Today, we continue our summer series on the Lord's Prayer. We've explored so far who God is as our heavenly parent, what it means to live into God's kingdom, and discern the will of God that transcends our own. Last week, we reached the midpoint of the prayer where we Uh, where the focus turned from God to ourselves as we explored what it means to ask God for daily bread. Today we turn to the second human petition in the prayer, forgive us as we forgive one another. Talking about our own brokenness and need for forgiveness can be difficult, not to mention uh, the difficulty of forgiving one another. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus seems to be particularly aware of this, as the very next verse after his Lord's Prayer, uh, he reminds disciples that if they forgive others, their Father in heaven will forgive them. Whenever Jesus talks about God forgiving us in the gospels, it's usually paired with the need to forgive one another. It's not exactly a quid pro quo, but rather what it means is that living the Christian life of being forgiven means forgiving each other in turn. The Apostle Paul loves to use the word reconciliation to illustrate this idea, which is where we are turning in our second lesson as Paul addresses the Corinthian church that seems to be steeped in conflict and separation. I invite you now to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the fifth chapter of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, beginning with the 11th verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that no one has died for all, or that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. As some of you know, I grew up Presbyterian. 
going to church, well, not every Sunday, but most, and participating in youth group and so on. But what you may not know about me is that my mother's side of the family is Catholic. And by Catholic, I mean really Catholic. (laughs) Their little German farming community in central Michigan was founded by German Catholics long ago. The town has a population of about 500, and the local Catholic parish has a membership of about, well, 500. (laughs) It's that Catholic. So while I grew up Presbyterian, I would occasionally go to Catholic Mass with aunts, uncles, and grandparents while visiting family. As a child, I didn't feel too out of place, well, except with one exception. When we said the Lord's Prayer, I was immediately outed as an outsider, as my 10-year-old self would blurt out, forgive us our debts, while everyone else said trespasses. After church, just learning what these two words, debts and trespasses, mean, I remember thinking in my childhood mind, are Presbyterians just really prone to getting in debt? (laughs) And are Catholics just prone to trespass all the time? As I grew a little older and understood that debts and trespasses were illustrations for all sin, I thought about, as I'm sure some of you have as well, Why do some churches say debts and some churches say trespasses? The answer is a little complicated. If we look to Matthew's gospel, both words are actually used. The Greek word used in the actual prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, aphelemeta, is clearly translated as debts. But if you look to the verse just after the prayer, as I said earlier, where Jesus reiterates the importance of uh, forgiving others as you have been forgiven, the word he uses to describe sin is trespasses. William Tyndall, back in the 1500s with his English translation of the Bible, was the first one to use the word trans, uh, trespasses for both, uh, both in the prayer and then the verse following. And from this translation, uh, this wording has stuck in the Catholic Church as well as the Anglican and Episcopal and and Methodist and and a few others of our brothers and sisters in Christ. While churches in the Reformed tradition, uh, which uh, the Presbyterian Church is part of, uh, we use debts and debtors. So you can see it's just a little difference in translation there that, that has this difference in prayer uh, from what we say here to what our Episcopal friends a couple blocks over are saying and our Catholic friends down the street are saying. If you remember back to the first week of the series, there are actually three versions of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew and Luke each have their own version of it in the Gospel. And then there's also a version of it in the early church document called the Didache, uh, or the teaching of the apostles. The Didache essentially copies this line from Matthew's prayer using debts and debtors. Luke's gospel has an interesting translation of this verse, though. Uh, It says this, Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Using both sin and debt for this petition. So the common word in all three of these prayers is debts. Uh, so I wanted us to explore for a minute why debts? Why, uh, why is this word used and what does this mean as a symbol for all human sin? First, the word debt implies that something is owed. 
This goes right back to uh, last week's line of the prayer. Give us daily bread. We trust for God to provide us everything we need. But more than that, God has given us life itself, creation itself. In other words, we owe everything to God. So when we fall short of the people God has called us to be, a good way to describe this state is one of debt. Debt to our creator, debt to our redeemer and sustainer. Debt here becomes both an admission of dependence, but also of humility. But this idea of debt, certainly in the Bible, also implies hope. Hope that this debt will one day be forgiven, which the gospel audience would have understood through Christ's saving death and resurrection. And this is also where our first reading comes in handy. As we first see the Hebrew teaching of the Jubilee year, which is occurring every 49 or 50 years, depending how you want to count. And in the Jubilee year, debts are forgiven, slaves are freed, property is restored. The Jubilee was seen as an opportunity for everyone to start over, to have a clean slate, a new life. It's not exactly clear if Jewish folks truly practice this rule to a T as it, as it lays out in Leviticus, but either way, it remained an important idea in the community and the culture, and this was a hope that was expressed throughout the community, particularly through the prophets. Isaiah claimed that the Messiah's coming would be the Jubilee year. People would be free of debt, of servitude. Everyone would begin a new and free life and peace when that redemption came. Uh, N.T. Wright and uh, a few other scholars believe that Jesus here uses debts in his prayer to represent all sin. uh, And that is an allusion to this very idea that in him the jubilee has come. Throughout the gospel, Jesus teaches and tells people that their sins are forgiven. For Jesus to tell people that their sins are forgiven, in doing this, he is essentially saying, I am the Messiah. The Jubilee has come. So in Christ, these ideas of both kingdom and Jubilee come together. And in his prayer, he calls for us to live into this here and now. In this line, Jesus teaches us that living into God's kingdom means living into the Jubilee, forgiving others as you have been forgiven. Whether you say debts, trespasses, or sin, praying this line of the Lord's Prayer is a dramatic call to live into the kingdom by truly believing that the Jubilee of God has come. We are to live as a forgiven people, and as such, we seek to forgive one another. If we refuse to forgive a neighbor, it's almost as if we are not fully convinced that we have been forgiven in Christ. That we're not fully convinced that God's kingdom, that God's jubilee has truly arrived. Living into the kingdom means living a forgiven life that seeks to forgive others. Now this doesn't mean that it's easy by any means. And this is exactly what Paul is addressing in our second lesson today. As I said earlier, Paul here is addressing a Corinthian church that is in a perpetual state of conflict. 
Some of these conflicts are cultural between Jews and Gentiles. Some are socioeconomic between rich and poor. These conflicts have splintered the church, and Paul wants them to find their common ground in Christ. Paul talks about forgiving one another by using a favorite term of his, reconciliation. This means reconciling, bringing two or more parties back together who were previously estranged. He reminds the Corinthians of their new, forgiven, jubilee life in Christ. Then he says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to God's self, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the the message of reconciliation to us. In other words, friends, as we have been reconciled with God, we are to seek ways to reconcile with one another. As God has forgiven us, we are to forgive each other. Like the Corinthians, our community and world today has its own divisions and conflicts. Cultural, economic, generational, ideological, theological, the list can go on and on and on until we are all just overwhelmed. In such a world, we are called to seek reconciliation, to forgive as we have been forgiven. One of our Presbyterian confessions, the Belhar Statement, was written in South Africa during apartheid, uh, seeking this sort of reconciliation. Listen to what they say. They say that unity is therefore both a gift and an obligation for the Church of Jesus Christ. That this unity must become so visible that the world may believe that separation, enmity, and hatred between people and groups is sin, which Christ has already conquered. Jesuit priest Father Greg Boyle knows a thing or two about this sort of reconciliation and deep forgiveness across divisions. For decades now, he has run a ministry in Southern California for former gang members called Homeboy Industries, offering them opportunities for education, rehabilitation, community, but also employment. Probably the boldest part of his ministry is that when he has people come into his program, he often seeks opportunities for former enemies, that is, former uh, members of rival gangs, to work alongside each other. Boyle has claimed that that his place has become a united nations for gangs. His work has continually, continuously challenged the status quo and has done remarkable work and bringing enemies together for a common purpose, reconciling and seeking peace in the name of Jesus Christ. To live forgiven lives, to live kingdom lives, lives that seek unity and reconciliation in Christ, friends, is a daunting task. It's a daunting task in such a polarized and divided world that we live in. But you know, we actually practice this. We practice this each week in worship as a faith community. There's a good reason the passing of the peace is just after the prayer of confession and assurance of pardon. After this moment in worship where we share our brokenness and are reminded of our forgiveness, our new life in Christ, we are then tasked with forgiving each other, passing and sharing the peace of Christ to our neighbors around us. 
And we often use this, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone, we often use this as a time to say hi to someone we haven't seen in a while. But, you know, if we stop and think about it, this is one of the most important parts of our service each week. Because, friends, here we practice the difficult work of reconciliation God calls us all to in the world we live in. Friends, as we continue to pray this line and confess our brokenness to God, may we remember that in Christ God's jubilee has come, that we have been forgiven. As we live into God's kingdom, may we live forgiven lives, seeking reconciliation and unity, passing and sharing the peace of Christ with everyone we meet, confident that one day all division and brokenness will be wiped away, and all will be one in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, may the peace of Christ be with you.